Hello, March of History audience. Before episode 41 begins, I just want to remind you to head on over to patreon.com slash the March of History. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the March of History. I also have links to the Patreon account in all of the summaries for every episode. So if you just click the summary, you'll see a summary of the episode. And below that, a link to our Patreon. It's also on our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. So any one of those is a way to find the March of History's Patreon. And in case you didn't hear in last episode or on Instagram, Patreon is the method which you can use to contribute financially each month to the March of History in an amount that you can afford and help the March of History grow for the future and become a full-time podcast and bring you better and more frequent content. Thank you. This is the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness. Welcome to episode 41 of the March of History. We left off in episode 40 with a forum battle. People were murdered in the forum while taking a vote to recall Cicero. Tribunes were injured. Quintus, Cicero's brother, was left for dead beneath corpses in the forum. And Cicero was not recalled. Clodius had won the battle. But though Clodius won this battle, there were some unintended consequences that fell out from the aftermath of this. It seems it was just too much blatant violence used against unarmed citizens for most of Rome to stomach. And even some of the common people of Rome began to turn their back on Clodius. Yes, they liked his policies, they liked his free bread and grain and everything he was doing for them, but maybe they didn't approve of his methods and the violence that he was putting into their streets. Now, I'm not saying that all of the poorer classes in Rome suddenly turned against Clodius, but his support is not as it once was. So in many ways, he won the battle and stopped Cicero from being recalled, but it hurt him in the overall war, the war for the streets, the war for the power in Rome. Clodius spent a lot of his political capital and his social capital on stopping Cicero from being recalled, which may not have been the smartest choice because Cicero was never that dangerous of an enemy. But like I said, Pompey and the Senate lost the battle against Clodius, but not the war, and they almost immediately began preparing for another attempt to recall Cicero. But this time, it's not going to be a rushed attempt while Clodius is at a funeral. They are going to prepare this right this time, and they're going to do it step by step. They're going to move ahead in carefully planned stages. The first thing the Senate does is it schedules the vote for the recall of Cicero well out in advance. It makes it in August of 57 BCE. Remember, January of 57 BCE is when Clodius had attacked the forum and stopped the first vote. The Senate and Pompey said, all right, the next vote's going to be in August, and this is going to give them a lot of time to prepare. And what do they do with that time? They begin to widely publicize this vote not just in Rome, but all around Italy. And they invite all Roman citizens in all of Italy to come to Rome to vote on this recall measure. And this is all very ironic because in doing this, it seems that Pompey and the Senate no longer trusted the common people and the poorer people of Rome. They felt that most of these common people had been made into a mob by Clodius and could no longer be trusted to have good judgment on these kinds of votes. And the reason this is ironic is because for much of Roman history, it was the optimates, the conservative bloc of the Senate, that didn't trust the Italians with citizenship, that didn't want to give them the chance to vote in Rome, felt that they would influence Roman politics for their benefit rather than Rome's benefit. After all, Rome had conquered these allied peoples in Italy. Why should Rome then allow them to vote and outnumber them in their own politics? 
And here the Senate was, and as always, or most of the time, led by the Optimates, looking to the people of Italy, or at least the Roman citizens of Italy, and some of which may have been transplants from Rome, but many of them would have been Italian people that were citizens of Rome. And it's looking for them to save Rome from its own Roman urban classes. Now, it gets a little bit more complicated than that because, of course, many of these urban poor in Rome had come from the countryside because they could no longer make a living farming in the countryside, competing against these massive slave plantations that were around Italy. But now we're getting into the weeds. The the point I'm making is that it's very ironic to find the Senate looking to the people of Italy to solve their problems that are being caused by the people that are inside Rome. So as the months go by, the Senate is spreading the word around Italy. Remember, there's no phones, there's no telegraphs, there's nothing to quickly exchange information. So you have to write letters to friends and family around Italy. You have to send messengers out to give speeches in town squares. You have to meet with important people of different towns to convince them to try to convince their citizens to show up to this vote. This is a massive undertaking, and the Senate makes sure to give themselves enough time to do it. Now, July 57 BCE rolls around, and it's one month before the vote is scheduled to take place in Rome. And the Senate holds a meeting, and this is an absolutely packed meeting of the Senate. And that sounds kind of funny, but not all Senate meetings were equal, right? And some meetings would be sparsely attended, and other ones would be absolutely packed with all the most important people and unimportant people that just wanted to see the spectacle. And at this packed meeting, the Senate calls on the consuls and the magistrates of Rome to prepare legislation for Cicero's recall. They want to have everything in place and everything in order for the day that the actual vote happens. And this measure is overwhelmingly supported in the Senate. Almost everybody's for this measure to draw up these papers to recall Cicero. The only person, predictably, that, that you know makes a case against it is Clodius. And he's got a few people on his side, though, that support him, but they don't speak. But those people are, one, his brother, and then two tribunes who Cicero, at least, alleges were paid off or bribed by Clodius. But overall, this is a good sign for Cicero, and it means things are picking up momentum in his favor. And if that wasn't enough, Pompey decides to really pick up the momentum. Pompey has a massive network of clients and people who owe him favors all around Italy, and he begins to put them to use. He actually begins a campaign around Italy to drum up support for the recall vote, actually showing up in person to the different towns and cities of Italy and showing that, hey, I, Pompey Magnus, the great war hero, support this measure, and you should take time out of your lives to go to Rome to vote for Cicero's recall. And when Pompey goes to each city, he's presumably meeting with the eminent citizens to try to convince them to back this measure and to try to get them to give speeches to their own populace. He's probably making his own speeches, and he's writing to tons of friends and clients and people around Italy to convince them to get behind this recall. And thanks mainly to all these efforts Pompey is putting in and lobbying on Cicero's behalf, Author Anthony Everett says that all sorts of organizations begin to pass resolutions in favor of recall, even organizations that aren't even inherently political. For example, I mean, town councils are passing resolutions, associations of tax farmers, even craft guilds, which you would think they wouldn't really care one way or the other whether Cicero gets recalled, but everyone's getting behind this. For a period of time at least, Cicero becomes a coming together point for all different people from all different political agendas and all different classes to all support one common goal, and that's getting Cicero recalled from exile. And if all that wasn't enough, Pompey, the great war hero, also instructs his veterans to attend the vote as well. And he has veterans settled all throughout Italy, and That way, you know, they're all citizens, so you'd have a lot more votes, plus he would have the muscle to defend the meeting with these hardened veterans that some of them could be a little bit long in the tooth, right? But, you know, having veterans there is better than having people who don't know how to fight at all. And at the same time that this campaign around Italy is happening, Milo, remember him, he is now at this point the rival 
to Clodius when it comes to gang warfare in the streets. He's the tribune that has begun recruiting a gang and is combating Clodius where he can. But Milo is, at the same time that all the campaign around Italy is happening, is recruiting aggressively and organizing his gangs and getting ready to face Clodius. So finally, August 57 BCE rolls around and it's time for the recall vote. Everyone met on the Field of Mars outside of Rome and Milo showed up with his gangs in force to guard the meeting and to stop from happening what happened to the last meeting where Clodius came with a gang of gladiators and just started butchering people. Milo is determined that that will not happen this time. And of course, as is always happens in these kind of big votes, uh, Pompey gives a speech, other important senators give a speech all in favor of the bill. And it seems that Milo's gangs and Pompey's veterans actually intimidated Clodius. That's the only explanation I can think of because the vote goes off without a hitch. Nobody attacks the meeting. Nobody tries to break it up. Nobody starts killing citizens and wounding tribunes. And this is huge news. Cicero is officially recalled just like that. I don't think anyone expected it to be that easy. I mean, they had to put a lot of work into it. It wasn't an easy thing, but the actual vote to go off that smoothly, I think that probably surprised everybody. And if that wasn't enough, the Senate votes at some point in the future that the Treasury will actually pay to rebuild Cicero's houses, which is very unusual because the Roman Treasury is known to be quite stingy with their money. So this idea that they're willingly coming out of their own pocket to pay for Cicero's houses is very surprising. But there's a lot of goodwill going Cicero's way at this point. Now, it's a bit of a mystery why Clodius goes quiet during all this time. You know, this seems like the essential moment for him to step up and to do something. They're trying to vote to recall Cicero. Last time he reacted with murder and violence, and this time he has no reaction at all. I mean, we know he's not a coward. He's put his life in danger in these riots many times before. He doesn't lack for boldness, so it seems unlikely that he was intimidated or, I mean, maybe he was. Maybe just Milo and, and Pompey had so many men that he just felt that he couldn't possibly face them. We don't know. Cassius Dio does seem to indicate that Clodius gave some kind of speech against the actual recall vote, but that Milo prevented him from actually attempting violence. So what are we left to think? Maybe you think that Clodius has finally been outmatched and his days are over with of being a gang leader. Or maybe you think that he's seen the errors of his ways and that killing people in the forum he had never meant to do and maybe he went too far and now felt terrible about the murders that he had committed and wanted to repent and to reform his ways. But I got news for you. If that's what you thought about Clodius, then you have not been paying attention to this podcast so far. Clodius is every bit the violent and cantankerous individual he's ever been, and he has a lot of fight left in him. For whatever reason, he took some time off during that vote, but he comes right back and firing. But let's for, take a break from, from Rome for now, and we'll hop over to Cicero, who's, remember, he's in exile in Greece, and Cicero's been following all these events closely. I mean, he is the major person who's going to benefit or not benefit, depending on whether the recall vote is passed or not passed. And Cicero, I mean, every time things look well for him, he seesaws to overconfidence. And when things look bad for him, he seesaws back into a depression. And this is the way Cicero reacted about a lot of things throughout his life. This is not new, but, you know, when you're talking about exile or recall to Rome with your houses being built at government expense, those are two very different things, right? Two uh, very different fortunes for him. So it's causing his normal seesawing tendencies to go a little bit out of control. But as he's watching this absolute groundswell of political support in Italy for him, and like I said, a, a coming together of all the political agendas and all the political classes in his support, he feels so confident that he just sets sail from Greece and sails for Italy before the vote's even taken in <laughs> for his recall. So before they even take the vote, he just leaves Greece, he leaves exile and heads back for Italy. He's feeling that confident. 
and he lands in Brindisium, which is modern-day Brindisi, a city I would love to go to sometime because it is actually important. I mean, a lot of Roman armies left from Brindisium if they're heading to the east, and it's actually a city that features prominently in the civil wars that come later in our story of Caesar. But Cicero lands in Brindisium on August 5th, according to his letter to his best friend Atticus, And coincidentally, the day that he lands, August 5th, was also the anniversary of Brindisium's founding. So Brindisium's having a huge festival to celebrate their founding day. And then the man that all of Italy has been hyping up and drumming up support for and trying to get recalled. And remember, Cicero is from Arpinum, which is a town outside of Rome. So he likes to consider himself a Roman. He wants to be thought of as a Roman. But most of these Italians that hear his story probably think of him as an Italian, and he's one of theirs. So they are very much in support of Cicero, and for months now, there's been people coming around giving speeches for Cicero, and now they're having their big party for their founding anniversary, and who shows up to their party? Oh my God, it's Cicero. He just comes in on a boat, and he, you know, we have to be partying already, so then the party just ramps up even more, and from Cicero's perspective, this is great. He comes home to Italy to a big party, and if that wasn't enough, who's in Brindisium to greet him there? His daughter, Tolia, and he absolutely loves Tolia. Tolia is the apple of his eye, easily his favorite child, and she's there, and if all that wasn't enough, it's Tolia's birthday. So Cicero comes back to this party in Brindisium. He gets to see his daughter. It's on her birthday. They get to spend it together among this party. It's one heck of a homecoming to Italy. And that's just Italy. He still has to go back to Rome. Cicero by now had been in exile for 16 months and hadn't been back to his home city, Rome, for 16 months. And the hype around him returning after this massive groundswell of support has hit a fever pitch when he sets out from Brindisium to Rome. And author Anthony Everett says in his book Cicero, quote, Cicero's journey up Italy and his reception in Rome were as close to a triumph as a non-military man could aspire to. There were massive demonstrations in his favor. And he said later that Italy had taken him on its shoulders and carried him back to Rome. He described it all in a long, excited letter to Atticus. Official delegations came out to meet him from every township and gave him, quote, the most flattering marks of regard, end quote. As usual, he overreacted. Speaking a few days later, he said that their decrees and votes of congratulation and confidence were a ladder, quote, by which I did not simply return home, but climbed up to heaven, end quote. When he reached the outskirts of Rome on September 4th, almost everybody on his list of VIPs turned out to welcome him. Only his enemies stayed away. At the Capena Gate, the steps of the temples were packed with ordinary citizens who greeted Cicero with loud applause. The forum and the capital were filled with, quote, spectacular crowds, end quote. Now, I imagine at this point, you could almost visibly see the steam coming out of Clodius' ears during all this sickening celebration of Cicero's recall from exile. Clodius is furious, and he's not one to sit on his hands. He decides to strike back right away and to strike back hard. You see, there's a growing food shortage in Rome, which is at least partially caused by Clodius. Clodius had created the free grain dole to the citizens of Rome. It basically is exactly what it sounded like. He just gave out free grain to Rome, and once he did this, Rome was kind of stuck with this policy, if I remember right, for the rest of its history. I mean, once you give free food to people, it's tough to take it away without being unpopular. And so because of this, there was a shortage in grain and there were spikes in prices. And and Clodius is not the only reason. I mean, there was all sorts of issues with Rome's grain supply and protecting it and predicting it and stuff like this. But Clodius used this opportunity and he seized on it. And he made everyone in Rome aware that this grain shortage and this rise in grain prices was Cicero's fault. Why? Why? Don't worry about that. It's just Cicero's fault. Just know that much. 
And the general masses of the common people of Rome were very willing to believe just about anything Clodius told them. And as a result, an absolute riot ensues in Rome. Cassius Dio says people rushed to the capital where the senators were meeting and threatened first to, quote, slay them with their own hands, end quote, meaning slay the senators with their own hands. And then the mob later said to the senators that they would, quote, burn them alive, temples and all, end quote. And the senators, I mean, kind of their Senate house would be a temple. They would meet in various temples around Rome. So it's kind of like saying, hey, we're going to burn you down, your meeting place and all. We don't care if it's a religious place. All we care about is you feeding us. If you don't feed us, we're going to butcher you, we're going to burn you alive, and we're going to burn your temples down. (laughs) The mobs of Rome did not screw around when it came to food. And during these riots, rocks were actually thrown at the consul Metellus Nepos, who was actually a relative and ally of Clodius. And yes, that's the same man, Metellus Nepos, that worked with Caesar when Caesar was a praetor. They tried to pass the law to recall Pompey with forces to take control of Rome just after the Catiline conspiracy. A big riot had ensued because Nepos had given a signal to his supporters or he had the kind of armed guards at this meeting to attack the optimate followers. Cato was there and it was a big mess. And Caesar ended up getting booted from the praetorship because of this. And then Nepos fled the city and ran to Pompey. And Pompey eventually came back and divorced Nepos' sister for sleeping with Caesar. This guy's life is a big mess, right? (laughs) But Nepos is now the consul, and he is at least at first allied to Clodius because he's related to Clodius. But eventually Pompey manages to convince him or force him into switching sides. And I'm sure having rocks thrown at him by Clodius' rioters helped to make the case to him that he should switch sides. But Cicero wasn't playing games this time. He hadn't been in exile for 16 months just to be recalled and immediately exiled from Rome again or have to flee from from mobs and rioters. Cicero is a very clever politician. He's not always brave when it comes to physical danger, but he knows how to be a great politician. And he immediately goes to the Senate and proposes a law in the Senate to give Pompey a special command to fix the grain supplies. And Cassius Dial even says that this command was for five years inside and outside Italy, a very powerful command for Pompey. And it works. The Senate agrees to this, and Pompey gets yet another special command. And for Cicero, this kills two birds with one stone because, one, he outmaneuvers Clodius, and the focus is no longer on, hey, Cicero caused the grain shortages. The new focus is that, wow, the great commander, the great administrator, the great organizer, Pompey, is fixing the issue, or at least is going to fix the issue, and that's the focus, and it's no longer focusing on blaming Cicero. And just as importantly, Cicero has now paid Pompey back. Pompey spent a lot of social capital and resources and and probably actually money to bribe people to help get Cicero recalled from exile. Cicero has now repaid him by getting him a special command that gives him more honors and more chances to make money. And, you know, Pompey is always glory hungry, so Pompey loves this. So let's leave Cicero there for now and hop on back to Milo. So Milo's timeline's a lot more confused. At some time in 57 BCE, After the January attack on the Forum, where Clodius had his gang of gladiators killing people, Milo decides to go on the offensive. You see, Clodius by that point was no longer a tribune, which meant that he didn't have immunity from prosecution. So Milo decided it was the perfect time to charge Clodius and indict him with charges of violence. And as author Adrian Goldsworthy says, I mean, this was an open and shut case. If there's ever an open and shut case in all of history, Clodius was obviously inciting violence. And Milo tries to charge him not just once during this year, but twice, and both times is unsuccessful. 
And the reason why is because, well, one, Clodius is very well connected and very powerful because his family is very well connected, very old family in Rome and a very powerful family. And he's got siblings and cousins and people who owe his family things in all sorts of powerful positions. His brother is a praetor. Like I said, Metellus Nepos, that might be, uh, he might be akin to a cousin, is the consul. So Clodius does have lots of supporters. And because of this, Milo can't seem to prosecute the man. And the way Clodius wriggles his way out of at least one of the prosecutions is that Metellus Nepos, the consul, says that he won't allow the praetor to move forward with the trial until the new quaestors are elected. The quaestors have a role in the trial in that they handle the allotment of the jurors, but the reason Nepos is saying that you can't hold the trial until the new quaestors are elected is that the aediles are elected first. In other words, by the time the new quaestors are elected and this trial begins, Clodius will have already been elected aedile and therefore will be immune to any prosecution and any trial that could have happened. This is the consul Nepos intentionally delaying the trial until Clodius can be elected aedile and receive immunity. Now, this is where I should make an, an important point here. Cicero, in some of his letters and speeches, seems to make the case that it was because Clodius weaseled his way out of two different trials that Milo then said, hey, if the legal way of bringing this man to justice won't work, then I'm going to resort to gangs and to violence just like him. And if that's true, then that means that Milo didn't have gangs in our last episode during the meeting to first recall Cicero back in January, and that was just a butchering of pure unarmed citizens, and it wasn't so much a, a battle in the forum. But I'm not so sure I believe this, because remember, Cicero is not a neutral observer. He is Clodius's biggest enemy. And Cicero, in many of his speeches, would have he's a lawyer. He would have been looking to defend the people who are helping him and to paint their cause in the nicest light possible. But I mention it to you because it is possible. It is possible that Milo tried to bring Clodius to trial twice and only then decided to resort to violence. But I don't think so. I think he was recruiting gangs well before then. But take that for what it's worth, because as always, I'm not a historian myself. Now, getting back to Milo and Clodius, as Milo is attempting to bring him to trial and as Clodius is attempting to escape by running for Aedile, for some reason, the elections are postponed for Aedile and for all the positions. And this seems very fishy, right? Maybe Milo is behind this. Maybe Pompey's behind this. If Clodius is trying to wriggle his way out of the, this trial, then maybe we can just delay the elections and then we can have a trial before the elections. And Clodius knows that this is not good for him, and he goes absolutely berserk. And Anthony Everett says in his book Cicero, quote, When the elections were postponed, Clodius stepped up the pressure on the streets. He let it be known that if elections were not held soon, he would carry out reprisals against the city. In November, he staged a series of riots. On November 3rd, an armed gang drove away the workmen who were rebuilding Cicero's house on the Palatine. From this vantage point, they threw stones at Quintus's house nearby and set it on fire. A few days later, Clodius mounted an attack on Cicero in person. Cicero wrote excitedly to Atticus, and this is a letter from Cicero to his best friend Atticus. It goes, quote, On November 11th, as I was coming down the Holy Way, he, meaning Clodius, came after me with his men. Uproar, stones flying, cudgels and swords and evidence, and like a bolt from the blue. I retired into Tedius Damio's forecourt, and my companions had no difficulty keeping out the rowdies. Clodius himself could have been killed, but I am becoming a dietitian. I am sick of surgery. End quote for the letter. And what Cicero is saying there, because I know that these ancient writings are not always the easiest to understand, is that he was coming down this main street of Rome, and then suddenly Clodius and his men just came out of nowhere and tried to attack and mug him and his, his followers. He says there were stones flying, cudgels or clubs were being swung. He saw swords in a city where weapons are not allowed. That's a big deal. 
So he and his supporters ran into one of their friend's houses, into the forecourt of the friend's house, and Cicero's companions had no difficulty keeping them out of the house, but said there was a big tussle, that Clodius could have been killed, and then the whole bit at the end, I'm becoming a dietitian, I'm sick of surgery, he just means that... I actually had to look this one up myself. So apparently it was like an ancient Greek philosophical diet that would be better for you to eat less meat and more fish and more vegetables and lentils and milk and honey, which actually doesn't sound so wrong. So <laughs> somebody had it figured out in ancient times a long time ago. And he says, I'm sick of surgery or he's sick of the blood and, and the slaughter. And then Everett continues, quote, the next morning, in broad daylight, Clodius led a force armed with swords and shields to storm and burn the house of Milo, his competitor for mastery of the streets. A counterattack beat them off, and a number of leading Clodians were killed. For the time being, this was a decisive encounter, and Clodius temporarily lost control of the situation. End quote. So the streets of Rome have become chaotic, to say the least. Clodius has gone on the extreme offensive. He has chased off the workers who are rebuilding Cicero's house. From that vantage point, he has thrown stones and lit fires on his brother Quintus's house because Cicero's house is on top of a hill. It's on the Palatine Hill. It's actually, it was when it, when it wasn't torn down, one of the largest houses in Rome. And he, Cicero had bought it at some exorbitant price from Crassus, I think. But because it was on this Palatine Hill, it overlooked other houses, one of which was Cicero's brother's house. And so they're able to throw rocks at his brother's house and then throw torches at it and set it on fire. They're attacking Cicero and his supporters in the streets. And then Clodius really tries to up the ante and takes a group armed with swords and shields to attack Milo's house. And Milo gets the best of them. Milo is able to fight them off with his supporters and kill a bunch of leading Clodians. This is big news for Milo. Milo is doing all he promised Pompey he would do and more. He is meeting Clodius' gang violence with violence himself, and he's going head-to-head -head with Clodius, and he's actually winning. He's challenging the king of the streets on the streets, and he's winning the battle so far. Now, it should be mentioned that I'm just mentioning the biggest incidents of this ongoing gang war to you. The mugging of the consul and his supporters in last episode, the storming of the forum during the recall vote, and, and the killing of the people and wounding of the tribunes in last episode, the attack on Cicero and Quintus's houses, the attack on Milo's house. But if you read Cicero's speeches and letters, it seems that there was almost daily battles going on in and around Rome by these two gangs. And the details of many of these battles don't necessarily make it to history, but I just want to make you aware that there is just chaotic muggings and violence and attacks going on throughout Rome all throughout this period. In fact, Cicero says in one of his speeches about this period, quote, The forum had been taken in the preceding year, the temple of Castor having been occupied by runaway slaves, as if it had been a fortress. Not a word was said against such conduct. Everything was done by the clamor and impetuosity and violence and assaults of men desperate through indigence and through their natural audacity. And you endured that it should be so. The magistrates were driven from the temples. Others were altogether cut off from all approach to them or to the forum. No one offered any resistance. End quote. Essentially, he's saying that Clodius and his gangs during this period had occupied the temple of Castor and Pollux, had made it into a fortress in the political heart of Rome, and that the Senate and the powerful people in Rome did nothing. They watched it happen. They did nothing about it. They didn't even raise a stink about it. Imagine, I mean, I've said this before, but if Caesar was doing these things, Cato and the Optimates would have been up in arms. For whatever reason, I don't know if it's because Clodius is better connected to the Optimates, but they didn't mind when he did these things, which are way worse than anything Caesar ever did. It's, it's pretty wild. But Cicero continues in his speech, quote, The forum was strewed with the corpses of Roman citizens murdered in a nocturnal massacre. There not only was no new sort of investigation into such events instituted, but even the old courts of justice were abolished. 
You saw a tribune of the people lying down stricken to the ground with more than 20 wounds and almost dead. The house of another tribune of the people, a man of godlike virtue. And he says in parentheses, for I will say what I think myself and what all men agree with me in thinking. And he continues, a man of most eminent, unheard of, unprecedented greatness of mind and wisdom and integrity was attacked with fire and sword by the army of Clodius. End quote. And Cicero gets a little verbose at the end there, extolling the virtues of the one tribune, but don't get lost in all that. Basically, what he's saying is that during, it seems during the night that a whole bunch of citizens were massacred by these street gangs. Probably he's insinuating that they were Clodius's gangs. And that not only was no investigation into this conducted, but even the old courts that usually functioned were abolished completely because they just couldn't function. I mean, we've already heard that in the past, different courts have been smashed up by Clodius when they did things he didn't like. And he says that multiple tribunes were attacked, that one was beat so bad that he was lying with more than 20 wounds, almost dead. Another one was attacked in his house. And I think that the tribune that Cicero is referring to in that letter, he doesn't say, or in that speech, he doesn't say his name, but I think he's talking about Publius Cestius. And Cestius, just to remind you, is Milo's fellow gang raiser. There is a third guy raising gangs in Rome. He's another tribune with Milo. He's on Milo's side, but he does not fare as well as Milo, so we don't talk about him as often. But here's what happens to Cestius, according to Cicero. Cicero says, quote, He gave a notice to the consul that he could not proceed because he was observing the auspices. When, on a sudden, that band of Clodius which had already been repeatedly victorious in the slaughter of citizens, raises an outcry, hurries forward, attacks him. Some fall with their swords on the tribune, unarmed and unprovided, and some with pieces of fences and with clubs. And at length, having received many wounds and been weakened and disabled by the injuries which he had received from these men, fell down in an almost lifeless state and was only saved from the actual death by their believing that he was dead. For when they saw him lying on the ground with numberless wounds and gashes, scarcely breathing, pale and exhausted, they at last left off wounding him, more because they were tired and because they were mistaken, thinking him dying than from any feeling of pity or moderation. End quote. So these are very violent muggings, and these are the most prominent people being mugged and being attacked. But as you saw from the once, or as you heard from the one speech Cicero said, I mean, there would be the mornings where it seems that they would wake up and there would have been a nocturnal massacre of citizens just dead in the streets, and everybody would be wondering what the heck happened. And they're probably less prominent people, so they don't get a whole separate speech from Cicero. But, I mean, the one guy, Cestius, he's a tribune. He's supposed to be sacrosanct. He's supposed to be untouchable in Rome. And Clodius has no respect for these traditions at all. Now, at this point, Clodius has, in some ways, taken back the initiative in this gang war. You know, he's gone after Cicero's house's building site. He's attacked Quintus, his brother's house. He's attacked Milo's house. So he's got the initiative, but the results are not that favorable, right? He's attacked Cicero on the street, but he didn't really get a hold of Cicero. He attacked Milo's house, but he got beat back, and then several of his, his prominent supporters had died in the fighting. So these are not the greatest results for Clodius. And part of this is because Milo and his side have adapted the tactics of Clodius, they have begun recruiting armed guards and gladiators and thugs and Pompey's veterans and are engaging the exact same kind of street brawling tactics that Clodius always engaged in. And this is something that happens throughout history. I mean, if you look at Napoleon Bonaparte during the Napoleonic Wars, he had unique and novel tactics that surprised his enemies and that they couldn't keep up with. But if you keep on blowing your enemies away like that, eventually they're going to copy your tactics. If your tactics seem extremely effective and theirs are ineffective, eventually they're just going to copy your tactics. And then your tactics are not so novel, not so new, and therefore not so effective anymore. But Clodius does get one major victory. He is elected aedile, which means that he is immune from prosecution. 
So now that Clodius is free and clear from this impending prosecution, he decides that the best defense is a good offense. And in February of 56 BCE, he indicts Milo on charges of violence. This is just jaw-dropping hypocrisy. I mean, everything Clodius has ever done has been hypocritical, but this kind of hypocrisy, he evades twice a trial that Milo tries to bring him to to charge him with violence, and the second he gets immunity, he turns around and he charges Milo for violence. And as you see, Milo, he's no longer a tribune. He doesn't have immunity anymore himself, so he is actually vulnerable to this prosecution. So Rome at this point... It's a political circus. And you may be wondering why I'm taking the time to tell you all this story, which doesn't even feature Caesar. It's because you need to know what Rome was like when Caesar marches on Rome. It was not a functioning republic that the evil Caesar snuffed out in the prime of its light that, you know, it was not some idyllic republic that was benefiting all citizens and functioning well. It was as dysfunctional as any government has ever been in all of history. And yes, it gets a little bit better before Caesar eventually marches on Rome, but even in its best moments, even when Clodius isn't running the streets with gangs killing people, it's not even really a republic. It's an oligarchy. It's run by the Optimates, and they look out for the interests of themselves, their family, and their friends, and they kick everyone else down the ladder. It's not a fair republic by any means. It's not representative of most people by any means. But let's get back to this trial between Milo and Clodius. This is the new trial now, where it's Clodius prosecuting Milo for violence. Because this trial will have a huge impact on the stability of the first triumvirate and of Rome. And just to give you some backstory... Rome at this point in time was again jockeying to be assigned to resolve the Egyptian problem. And the issue with Egypt, as I've explained in previous episodes, was that Egypt had been left to Rome in a will, but Rome refused to take it because they couldn't allow any of their prominent citizens to gain that much power. Well, again, there was a crisis and the king of Egypt was in Rome trying to get their help to help put him back on the throne. And there was a movement to try to get Pompey sent to do it. And Pompey was seen to be for this. So that's just some backstory you need to know in order to understand what happens in this trial. So with all that in mind, Cicero actually describes the incident that occurs this trial in a letter to his brother Quintus. And Cicero, again, is not a neutral observer. He was leading the defense. Well, him and Pompey were leading the defense for Milo. And Cicero says in his letter, and for those who care, this is a translation by Evelyn Schuckberg. He says, quote, On the 7th, Milo appeared. Pompey spoke, or rather wished to speak. For as soon as he got up, Clodius' ruffians raised a shout, and throughout his whole speech he was interrupted, not only by hostile cries, but by personal abuse and insulting remarks. However, when he had finished his speech, for he showed great courage in these circumstances. He, meaning Pompey, was not cowed. He said all he had to say, and at times by his commanding presence, even securing silence for his words. Well, when he finished, up got Clodius. Our party received him with such a shout, for they had determined to pay him out, that he lost all presence of mind, power of speech, or control over his countenance. This went up to two o'clock, Pompey having finished his speech at noon, and every kind of abuse, and finally epigrams of the most outspoken indecency were uttered against Clodius and Clodia, that's Clodius' sister. He continues, Mad and livid with rage, Clodius, in the very midst of the shouting, kept putting questions to his clique. Quote, Who was it who was starving the commons to death? End quote. His ruffians answered, Pompey. And Clodius goes on, quote, Who wanted to be sent to Alexandria? End quote. And they answered, Pompey. And Clodius continues, quote, Who did they wish to go? They answered, Crassus. The latter was present at the time with no friendly feelings to Milo. Now, this whole exchange is essential in understanding the dynamics between the triumvirate after this. 
Because to explain it in layman's terms, I know it's not always clear when it's translated from Latin into English and it's 2,000 years old or more than that. But basically, Pompey tries to give a speech and is insulted and heckled relentlessly by Clodius and his gang. But according to Cicero, he determinedly gives his speech and he finishes and with a lot of dignity and at times is able to command silence just through his presence. And the Romans put a lot of stock in that kind of stuff. And Cicero says Clodius got up to speak, and of course Milo's side jumps up and starts shouting and harassing him, just like he did to Pompey. And Cicero says that Clodius loses his nerve, and his voice gets hollow and shaky, and his words are scatterbrained because he's nervous, because he's being heckled. Again, this is all according to Cicero, who's an enemy of Clodius, but maybe he's right. Cicero was one of the greatest orators, maybe the single greatest orator of all time, so he would know something about public speaking. He then says Milo's side begins chanting insults about Clodius and his sisters, who just remember Clodius is, is rumored to be sleeping with all of his sisters. And even their husbands, or at least one of their husbands, has testified to the fact in court that Clodius was sleeping with his sisters. So <laughs> there's no uh, there's no smoke where there's not fire. And at this, Clodius just loses his temper. I mean, Cicero says that he goes mad and he's livid with rage and he turns to his gangs and he starts chanting, who is starving the people to death? And they chant Pompey because Pompey's now in charge of the grain supply and it, it has not been figured out yet. There's still a shortage of grain. And he goes, who wants to go to Alexandria? And they all chant Pompey. So Alexandria is Egypt where the Ptolemaic dynasty ruled. So who wants to go to Egypt? Pompey. He then finally says, who do you want to go? Meaning, who do you want to go to Egypt? And they all yell, Crassus. And Crassus was at the trial, and Cicero says that he was not there in support of Milo. Now, this changes everything for Pompey, because for a long time now, Pompey has suspected that Crassus is behind Clodius, that he is pulling Clodius' strings, and that he's backing him politically and financially in secret, and that Clodius would not be so bold and so aggressive if it wasn't for somebody like Crassus giving him his secret support. And in Pompey's mind, at least, what just happened when they said, who do you want to go, and the whole crowd yelled Crassus, or at least Clodius' supporters yelled Crassus, in Pompey's mind, that's as good as a smoking gun. That is evidence, and that's all the evidence that Pompey needs to believe that Crassus is pulling Clodius' strings. In Pompey's mind, this is the absolute evidence he needed. Crassus is behind all of this. And Cicero continues in his letter to his brother about this trial. He says, quote, About three o'clock, as though at a given signal, the Clodians began spitting at our men. There was an outburst of rage. They began a movement for forcing us from our ground. Our men charged. His ruffians turned tail. Clodius was pushed off the rostra. And then we too made our escape for fear of mischief in the riot. End quote. And this is one of the funniest stories about Clodius to me. It seems that at three o'clock exactly during the trial, as if on cue, as if this was a planned out event, and it must have been, all of Clodius's gang just begins spitting in mass at the supporters of Milo, which is absolutely disgusting, but it's also extremely childish and funny and from a distance of 2,000 years and not being the one who's actually being spit on, I find it very funny and laughable conduct. Cicero claims that Clodius' gangmen charged Milo's side, who then fought and charged back. A riot ensued. Clodius was thrown off the rostra, which was the stage the, that he would have been speaking on. He was thrown off of it forcibly, and Cicero and Pompey decided to get out of there before the riot ended up killing them. And Pompey goes home from this whole event seething with anger and with fear. And for a long time after this, he doesn't go into the forum anymore. Because he fully believes that Crassus is behind all this, and he even believes that Crassus is actively trying to assassinate Pompey, trying to assassinate him. And remember, Pompey is always afraid of assassins, even in the best of times. And he, in a reaction to this fear of Crassus and the fear of the assassins and the fear of Clodius, he starts recruiting rural veterans to come to Rome to protect him, which we know he's already done. So I guess it means he's just bringing more and more. He's bringing kind of a private army into Rome to protect him from these supposed assassins. 
And Pompey makes no secret of this either. He's very open with everyone he knows that he believes Crassus is the one behind this and that Crassus is trying to assassinate him. And so as all of Rome watches, the first triumvirate seems to be crumbling before their eyes. They can't seem to put Clodius down or else it's possible that one of them is even supporting Clodius against another one of them. In which case, they're actually fighting with each other. And at this point, Pompey and Crassus are back at each other's throats as they've been throughout most of Rome's history or most of their history in Rome. And from the general populace's point of view, Caesar seems distracted in Gaul. And there's very real attempts to recall him from Gaul. We haven't gotten into this yet, but there's people saying that, hey, Caesar, you say Gaul is pacified. If it's pacified, then why do you need an army anymore? Why do you need to be governor anymore? Why don't you come on back to Rome and let somebody else take over? And there's still attempts to repeal his legislation that he passed as consul. And at least one of these attempts is even supported by Cicero and Pompey. So the triumvirate seems to be fracturing. They are fighting with each other. And it's not secret. All of Rome is watching it happen. But... We know Caesar better than all this, right? We know that he's not distracted in Gaul, that he's watching all these events. And we know that he's not about to give up his command, his chance of glory and immortality for the ages, because somebody said, hey, you, you, you said Gaul is conquered. Why don't you come on home? Like, he's not gonna, he's not gonna fall for that one, right? He's not, I mean, you'll take this command from Caesar over his cold, dead fingers. And I think that's what many in Rome don't seem to realize yet. Caesar knows that this is a political crisis for him, though, and he quickly comes up with a plan to fix it. And that is where we will end this episode of the March of History, and we'll pick up next time with Caesar trying to solve this issue, or at least I think we will. There may be a few things to cover in between then and what becomes known in history as the Conference at Lucca. Before I go, don't forget to check out the March of History's Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash the March of History. If you enjoy listening to these episodes, they are not free to produce and they take a lot of work, so please contribute something. Our Instagram is at the March of History. Our Twitter is at March underscore History. Our Facebook is the March of History. If you just search that in the search bar, our email is the March of History at gmail.com. I'm a little slow to reply to the emails. I don't like checking email that much. So if you do email us, just know that I'll take a little bit of time to get back to you. Also, if you listen on an Apple device or on Audible, please leave a review on the podcast store with a few words about why you like the podcast and five stars. It helps the podcast to grow a lot. Share the podcast with others who enjoy history that want to learn about ancient Rome or any kind of history and subscribe so you get notifications about future episodes. Thank you for listening as always. And I will talk to you next time on the March of History.